Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Kaleidoscope of Voices podcast. This episode is an interview with Nala Rajan and her career in law. She's currently a trial attorney with the Office of Foreign Litigation of the United States Department of Justice. In the past, she's been a special assistant U.S. attorney at the U.S. Attorney's Office and a deputy public defender at the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office. She's also worked in the private sector as a partner and associate at Mitchell, Silverberg and Nupp and a summer associate at Baker and McKenzie. Nala has been a pro bono attorney volunteer at the Domestic Violence Program, an executive committee member at the Muslim Bar Association of Southern California, the director at the Los Angeles County Bar Association, and an election protection volunteer at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Nala received her BA in Government, Political Science, and Middle Eastern Studies at Barnard College of Columbia University, her master's degree in International Political Economy and Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and her JD at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, why did you decide to go into law, and how did you discover that this is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life? So, to um, do the standard spiel that we all have to do when we work for the government, which is that any views that I express um, during this interview are my views, and I'm speaking only in a personal capacity and not as a representative of the United States government. Um, so to get to your question, um, it was, if I recall correctly, why did I decide to become a lawyer? Um, I actually had no plans to become a lawyer until my third year of law school. Um, until that point, um, which is weird because I was in law school, um, but until that point, um, I had planned to go into diplomacy and into the Foreign Service. Um, and I had been told by a mentor of mine that as a minority woman, if I wanted to succeed, I needed as many letters after my name as I could possibly get. And as a result, I thought, um, you know, I would go for a law degree. I also got my master's simultaneously. So I, I was just literally trying to add degrees to my portfolio so I could be taken seriously. Um, in my third year of law school, I took a trial advocacy clinic um, and I fell in love. It was just so great um, being able to examine and cross-examine witnesses, speak to a jury, argue in front of a judge um, that at that point, I realized I had found my calling. Um, you talked about this a little bit, but why are you passionate about what you do? Um, so the reason that I love the law so much is that you're constantly learning. I mean, there's so many different aspects of it. There's so many different types of lawyer you can be. Um, and, it, you know, as you um, know from my bio, I've, I've flipped um, several times from one kind of law to another kind of law. And it, you just have the opportunity to constantly learn a new field. Um, and it's always intellectually challenging. And I just really love that. Um, what, in your opinion, are the most important skills for a good lawyer to have, and what skills have you developed over the course of your career? Sure. So, um, when you're in law school, they teach you something called issue spotting, and that's when you get a particular case, you have to kind of drill down into the details um, and find all of the issues that could be um, could be important to you, issues to highlight, issues to discount, that sort of thing. Um, it turns out that 
what issue spotting does um, is it really narrows your focus because as I said, you are drilling down into details. Um, what I found most useful to me was doing the opposite, actually never losing sight of the bigger picture, um, which a lot of lawyers do. And I, I think that's part of the location that's unfortunate. So I think kind of broadening your outlook to look beyond just the current case that you're working on um, in terms of the impact of what you're doing on law as a whole, on society as a whole is really important. Um, so you were talking about how um, you were told like before you became a lawyer that you needed to have as many like degrees as possible as a woman of color. Um, mm -hmm. Has like your identity as a woman of color played a role in your career at all? And like, if so, what role? Sure. I mean, there, there are certain doors uh, that are unfortunately closed to you, um, but there are certain doors that are open to you. Um, and uh, when I say when I say that, what I mean is that there are people who will look to mentor you um, because they either look like you or speak like you or share something with you that they don't share with the majority of their colleagues or for the completely opposite reason, because you're the first person there who they've ever met, who's your color, your gender, uh, your religion, et cetera. And those relationships um, can be huge in terms of moving forward. Um, you know, I when I was at the law firm, um, one of my biggest advocates was the first female partner at the firm. Um, and she was just so excited to be able to have somebody that she could advocate for um, in terms of becoming another female partner. Um, so that those things are extremely important, um, but of course there are always gonna be obstacles. I mean, I can't tell you the number of meetings that I've walked into where they thought that I was the secretary or the paralegal. Yeah. Um, but you, you learn to make that into an advantage. You learn to think that it's a good thing when people underestimate you. Um, not that it isn't annoying to always be treated like the paralegal, but um, then when you can get up and say who you really are, uh, I, I find that quite empowering. Um, can you describe what your job entails and what's a typical day like? Sure. So currently I work for the Department of Justice in what's called the Office of Foreign Litigation. Um, and what we do is we represent the United States and United States interests um, in courts around the world. And um, because of the nature of the practice, there is no such thing as a typical day, um, which is essentially what I love about the job. Um, you know, just last week I was working on a matter related to um, a, a former employee embezzling money from one of our embassies. And I got um, called in midway through to assist on a question that came up related to the donation of Pfizer vaccines to other countries. Um, there are times when I've been out on a Saturday night and I'll get a phone call from the other end of the country saying, I'm sorry, the other end of the planet, I should say, um, saying that, you know, an embassy employee has been arrested. Um, what do we do? How do we get them out of jail? That type of thing. So um, there, there's nothing that's typical about my day. Um, and it's always different. It's always changing. Um, and it's always interesting. Um, you worked as an election protection volunteer. Um, what was your experience like? And um, I don't know if you can answer this, but like, how does it compare to what's going on today? 
Sure. So I did it a number of times. Um, the first few times I did it, I worked for a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization called the Lawyers Committee for um, Civil Rights. What they do is they send out election uh, protection volunteers all across the country um, solely to make sure that voting is going smoothly. Um, there are no, uh, you know, lines that are completely out of whack. Um, there, all the voting machines are working. All the poll workers are doing what they're supposed to be doing nobody's being turned away, um, that sort of thing. And so that was um, interesting for sure. But I also ended up doing uh, partisan um, election volunteering, uh, election protection work with the Obama campaign. This was obviously before um, I became a, a government employee because that would now be prohibited. Um, but working for the Obama campaign, they sent us, uh, they sent a couple of us out to Wisconsin. Um, and at that point in time, Wisconsin was having some serious issues with regard to uh, voter ID laws. And so there were a lot of questions with regard to um, who could vote, what they needed to vote, um, what kind of IDs were needed, what poll workers could ask, etc. And so that was a really interesting day. We just spent the entire election day at a polling place in Wisconsin, um, basically making sure that the poll workers were doing what they were supposed to do pursuant to the law and that they weren't turning anybody away who didn't have the right ID. Um, you've also worked as a pro bono attorney for domestic violence victims. What was your experience like there and what can and should be done to help? Sure. So um, I participated in a clinic that's set up by the Los Angeles County Bar Association, where they essentially assist um, people who want a restraining order to fill in all of the paperwork and do their initial appearance before the judge to get that restraining order. Um, it, it's heartbreaking in a lot of ways because there was never a lack of clients. We were always busy. There were always people coming in um, who needed our help. Um, and it would really range um, from anything, you know, to a like a verbal disagreement um, to the most horrific abuse. And so a lot of the, it, it definitely took an emotional toll, but at the same time, it was extremely satisfying to be able to help these people. Um, in terms of what can be done, um, I would just say that there should be a lot more education um, with regard to the types of violence, because uh, it's not always physical, um, but the types of violence to look out for, the types of triggers um, that, uh, when I say triggers, I mean the, the things that you should look out for. Um, if you think that your partner uh, may be, uh, a lot of people feel safe until it's too late. Um, and so I'm, there are some things that uh, can, can tee you off to, wait a second, this isn't exactly right. Why does he or she want to tell me what to wear? Why are they always criticizing me? Um, that sort of thing. I would also say education as to um, finances are really important. You find a lot of times in these types of relationships, one person can't leave because it's the other person who controls all of the money and that really restricts the options um, that the person wants to, who, who wants to leave has and so just education um, at all levels you know from um, I would say from middle school to high school on up in terms of how to manage um, finances. 
Um, so you talked a little bit about your experience at the Department of Justice, and you've also talked a little bit about how you worked in a law firm. So you've done work in the government and in the private sector. Um, how does the government and the private sector differ from each other? And how different was your personal experience in terms of your challenges and your accomplishments? So um, I worked for both the uh, county government as a public defender, uh, the federal government um, as a U.S. attorney, as well as in my current role and the private sector. Um, and they're all fairly different from each other. The federal government has resources that no state or county government has. Um, and so those resources uh, can be super important when it comes to investigating crimes. Um, the FBI is obviously top-notch um, when it comes to the investigation of certain um, certain criminal activity. Um, the private sector has even more resources, um, but of course they do completely different work. So you're not going to be investigating crimes um, in the private sector, but you will have tremendous resources at your um, beck and call to do whatever kinds of cases you want. Um, you know, at the at no level of government have I ever had a secretary. Um, I do my own photocopying. I answer my own phone. Um, I, you know, when faxing was a thing, I did my own faxing. Um, always in the private sector, you had somebody to do that for you because your time was money and it was simply too valuable to be spent on that kind of thing. Um, so it, they are different in that respect. Um, the biggest difference though is with regard to training. Um, the private sector has amazing training opportunities uh, for younger lawyers. The public sector doesn't. Um, while they're the federal government and the state government has all manner of trainings that they put you through. There's no time period where you get trained and then you go to work. You go to work and get trained at the same time. So it's kind of like being thrown right into the fire and figuring out how to manage it. Um, you know, I probably did my first hearing my first day um, as, as both a public defender and as a federal prosecutor. There just wasn't time to kind of explain to me everything that needed to be done before it needs to be done. Um, the private sector is very different. You're going to do a lot of kind of training stuff before you get your first case, before you do things um, on your own. And that, that has its pros and cons. I mean, some people learn a lot better when they have no choice but to learn because you're basically there and forced to do it. Um, what are some of the most interesting experiences or court cases that you've handled during your career? Um, there are just a tremendous range of things that I've done. Um, when I was uh, a public defender in Los Angeles, um, the Los they had just started to clean up what was then known and probably is still known as Skid Row uh, in downtown LA. They wanted to build that out and develop it. Um, and so they were doing these homeless sweeps of downtown, uh, picking people up, um, arresting them for basically just sleeping on the sidewalk, um, confiscating property. And uh, obviously these individuals didn't have any money, so it fell to the public defender's office to um, represent them. And uh, generally these homeless people would be offered a deal where if they don't, if they plead guilty and 
agreed never to go back to that same corner again, because again, this was all just about cleaning up downtown, um, then they could get out of jail. And so most people took that deal because obviously they wanted to be out of jail. Um, I happened to have a client that wasn't interested in moving. He had lived in that particular spot in downtown LA for the last 30 years. That's what he knew. Um, and he had no intention of moving. And so he refused to plead guilty. And it ended up being the first homeless sweep trial um, to go forward in the county of Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, it was obviously heartbreaking in certain respects because the guy was just sleeping on the sidewalk um and yet it was still a crime and so you know both the the i think the jury the judge and i all wrestled with this case um to a large extent so it's it's stuff like that where you're dealing with really kind of bigger societal things even though you're just you have one little tiny part of it um and then there's just completely frivolous stuff you know when i was at the firm we had a lot of entertainment clients. Um, and so I had my 15 seconds of fame on TMZ when um, I represented Ron Artest changing his name to Meta World Peace, you know? And so that was the one that got all the, the you know, the TMZ and all the fame. And yet that was probably the most inconsequential. I mean, except for the fact that his name is still Meta World Peace, but in, you know, in the vast scheme of the world, it was fairly inconsequential um, in terms of impact. Um, so it, it just ranges. Um, I can't talk too much about the work that I do now, um, unfortunately, but it's, it's, very similar in that we've got little cases, we've got big cases, we've got cases where um, it's really not going to impact anybody other than the specific person. Um, and we have cases where the impact could be huge for the entire nation. Yeah, so um, the law school is like infamously like it's very well known for being difficult. Um, can you describe your experience in law school? Um, it, it can be absolutely difficult. Um, my first semester there, I was absolutely miserable, um, you know, to the extent where my, my parents were like, look, if you're really unhappy and you want to drop out. And I was like, no, I've gotten myself into this. I, I will see it through. But um, for certain, it takes a lot of adjustment. Um, and part of the reason that it takes the adjustment and, and what I tell a lot of people going into law school right now is because um, thinking like a lawyer is not like thinking like a normal person and so essentially what they do to you your first year in law school and specifically your first semester is they break you down they break down the way that you think they make you realize that the way that you think is not suitable so that they can then build you up again in, and teach you to think in the way that you're gonna be most successful as a lawyer. Um, and a lot of people resist that, right? A lot of people have, um, think that they're super smart and you know the way that they've been thinking all this time has gotten them into law school so you know what could possibly the pro be the problem um, and the harder you fight against that you know restructuring of your mind essentially the more difficult it's going to be for you um, but I would say like once I once I got it once I understood what 
they were trying to do and kind of just gave myself to the process, um, it was a lot smoother. And, uh, you know, like I said, there are some amazing opportunities. The only reason I'm where I am today is because of a clinic that I took in my third year. So um, it's definitely difficult. Uh, if you stick with it, um, you can do some amazing things. And it is an education in terms of your own personal rights uh, that I think everyone should get. You know, I mean, I don't think people necessarily understand the rights that they have as citizens of this country. Um, and I think that that in and of itself is supremely valuable. Um, who has had the most influence in shaping your values and who you are today? Definitely my parents, um, my family as a whole, uh, you know, I, I do public service because they have always taught me the value of volunteering um, because they moved to this country as many of our parents did um, as immigrants and they found this country to be welcoming and accepting of them, um, allowed them to succeed in a way that other countries had not. And so that was something that they, you know, their gratefulness for this country was something that they uh, made very clear to both me and my sister early on. Um, but, and these values are essentially, you know, the values that, that we all grow up with as the smileys, you know, I mean, it's the, the community, the importance of community, the importance of volunteering, um, the importance of education, the importance of meritocracy. Um, it's these same things that, that run uh, throughout um, our community. And uh, those, I think, have very much influenced me and what I do. Um, what advice would you give to people who want to pursue a career in law? Uh, do your homework. Um, law school is extremely expensive and it's not easy. Um, and so know what you're getting into before you get into it. Talk to as many lawyers as you can. Uh, spend your summers working for law, law firms um, or part-time during the semester. Um, understand that being a lawyer um, doesn't necessarily mean being in court all the time. Um, I mean, it did for me, but I have lots and lots of lawyer friends who've never seen the inside of a courtroom and don't want to. Um, so there's a tremendous amount that you can do with a law degree, but know and understand why you're there before you go. Because if you don't, then you're just undertaking a tremendous amount of expense and heartache, um, and you may end up miserable. Um, yeah, so you were talking a little bit earlier about what, it, what it's like to like think as a lawyer. Like, what does thinking like a lawyer actually mean? Um, it's, it's something that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's essentially called, um, issue spotting is, is the way that it's normally described in law school. And what, what you're doing is you're kind of looking at a case, um, and again, this mostly pertains to lawyers who, like me, go into court and deal with um, plaintiffs and defendants, prosecutors and defendants, that sort of thing. But you're looking at a case and you are trying to figure out what the primary issues are in that case um, that you can then argue. Not every case is going to be the same. Um, they all are going to have pros and cons. You're never going to get the perfect case where 
the police did exactly what they were supposed to do and the defendant did exactly what they were supposed to do and then everybody got into a room together and the guy confessed to everything and all the evidence matches and you know it's easy peasy um that almost never happens and so what you have to do is you have to figure out what the weaknesses are in your case you have to figure out what the strengths are in your case and how best to argue them because um you know the at the end of the day you are the only advocate for your side. Um, I mean, sure, there are some private law firms that will have teams of lawyers of 20 or 30, but usually, uh, in most cases, you're the only advocate. And so you're the one who's going to have to figure out the best way to argue it. Um, so you've spent a lot of time, like, inside of the courtroom. What is it like inside a courtroom, like, as a lawyer? Um it's great. It can be intimidating. I think probably for my first 20 or so trials, I felt nauseous right before I started. Um, it's not uncommon. Uh, luckily, I never threw up, but it's not uncommon to, to throw up before your first trial. Um, so it can be intimidating, but it's also um, an incredible adrenaline rush. Um, as I said, you're, you're the only advocate for your position. So it's uh, it's you, a judge, and uh, the attorney for the other side. And, you know, whoever makes the best argument comes out on top. Um, sometimes a judge will ask you questions where you were not prepared um, at all because it had never occurred to you that this question would come up. And you have to think on your feet. Um, sometimes you can do that to the other side. You can bring up an issue that they were not thinking about and were not aware of, and they're going to have to figure out how to quickly combat what you've just said. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, I love it. I think it's fantastic, um, but it's definitely intimidating and it requires a lot of fast thinking. Um, what role do you want to play in making our society, country, and world a better place? Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, I, I guess I just want to um, continue to emphasize the importance of public service, the importance of chair, uh, charitableness and volunteerism, um, the importance of education, uh, regardless of your age. It's so important to continue to learn. Um, and I want to do that as well. I want to continue to learn um, different areas, different topics. Um, and lastly, what can the youth do for a better tomorrow? What's your message for them? Um, the youth so far uh, in what I've seen in the last year, um, in fact, in the last two years, uh, are doing exactly what they need to do. Um, they're staying engaged. They're advocating for positions that they care about. Um, it is. It has been fantastic to see from the March from our, for Our Lives uh, that was held a few years ago to the number of youth that were there at the George Floyd protests. Um, it's so important um, not only to advocate on social media, but to get out there in the streets um, and to, to get your voice heard on the issues that you care about. Um, and I think the youth are already doing that. I think that they um, are leaps and bounds ahead of where my generation was in terms of understanding the value of their voice um, and putting it forward. I, I think that, that um, they should absolutely continue to do so. Uh, if anyone um, is not already doing that, I would say find an issue that you care about and then learn everything that you can about it and then go out there and make your voice heard. Um, it's so important. 
And, you know, if you think about the Women's March, which happened right after President Trump was elected, I mean, that was basically one person who had an idea on Facebook, and it turned into millions and millions and millions of people marching all over the world. Um, and, you know, so it's not to, you can certainly say um, that one person can change the world. And uh, I think it's important for the youth to be able to use their voice to do that. Okay, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience and your advice. Absolutely. Okay.